Let's get right to it this morning and see what God has in store for us. I want you to turn with me to the epistle written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica, which is 1 Thessalonians, his first epistle. Chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 15, 16, and 17. Now many of us here are familiar with these verses, and it's time for us to, uh, or at least from time to time, we have to review all of the basics of the Bible including some of these basics on what the scriptures talk about when we would come to the end of time. So I want to talk to you today from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15, 16, and 17, where the Bible says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, which means proceed, shall not precede them which are asleep, which means dead, we will not precede those which are dead. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now these verses here, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is pretty much the primary text that we use, we who believe this doctrine of the rapture. This is the primary texts, 15, 16, 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4, as evidence, I'm not going to say proof, as evidence that the Lord is going to come for his church, but not just that, because that's somewhat established, I think, in the minds of many professing Christians across denominational lines. But rather, it is the evidence that we look at that Christ will come and take his church first, before, and I'll speak a little bit about this, before the period of time known in the Bible and announced by Christ and the apostles as the Great Tribulation, and then after that, we have the revelation of Christ, where the whole world sees him. So let me start off by saying that the rapture is different than the revelation of Christ, according to our understanding of the scriptures. And it will precede that period of time known as the Great Tribulation. Then, at the end of that period, there will be the revelation of Jesus Christ, where the scriptures say, every eye shall behold him. And let me just say this to you as professing Christians and those that are watching and those that are listening on the radio. You profess that you are a Christian. Somebody asks you, what are you? You say, well, I'm a Christian. But can you prove it? Does your life prove it? You see, in the end, that's all that's going to matter. It's not what we profess. It's not what we say. It's what we do. And I find that, as I just mentioned to you prior to reading the scripture, that no matter how I look at it from 45 years of reading and studying the Bible, I cannot come up with another alternative other than perhaps to amend my views just a little bit with some other views that are out there. But still, in the end of my mulling things over in my mind, I cannot see anything that I've learned and read over all these long years that doesn't point with a preponderance of evidence. These are the days that precede the return of Christ, that's the revelation and the rapture of the church, which precedes the great tribulation. But let me say this, even if we are wrong in our theology and our understanding that the rapture precedes the great tribulation, I will say this, that it is, at least for me, not to be excessively dogmatic about the timing of the coming of Christ for the church. And as some believe, the revelation and Christ coming for the church is one and the same event. Either way, Christ is coming. Yes. Of that, I'm firmly convinced. However, the more I speak to people, especially professing Christians, I am somewhat also convinced that not everybody is totally persuaded. How do I know that? It's behavior. It's not sometimes even what people do, it's what they don't do. For instance, if I knew that I had to give a defense in a court of law and it's coming up tomorrow morning, well, prior to all this, I would have myself so prepared, including the way I dress, you know, this counts in courts of law, your appearance, your tone of voice, who you have to defend you, the putting together of your case for your defense. If I was to meet some very important person that I admire, I would be prepared. And I think with these two examples, you can get 
what I'm driving at. People who actually truly believe that these are the end days, we're going to meet our God, as the scripture says, prepare to meet your God, are doing just that. They're preparing. They're letting go of certain things and picking up other things, as the scriptures instruct us. And this is what I look at, not only in your life and the lives of others who profess Christ, but I look for it in my own. But I could tell you that this preacher standing here before you, and I just happen to be your pastor, I sincerely believe this, I truly do. If I wanted to be like one of these high profile ministers, I would change my speech. I would make it more attractive. But I've decided a long time ago, and I'm not going to change, just to stick with the scriptures and stick with the text. Because I'm not the Holy Spirit in any case, and what happens between any individual, you here and those watching and listening, is between them and God. And my decision is between me and my God. And uh, I am able to say today that I am very, very grateful that I know what I know. I am very, very much persuaded, as the Apostle Paul would say, that he's coming again. And it very well could be in our lifetime. But we will see how things develop and we'll see how people respond. Then, and only then, we'll know what people actually believe. Now here's the interesting thing. Now, I've done a couple of doctorate dissertations, as you know, and in order to prove my point or to make my case, I did then what I like to do now. I like to quote from secular sources, because in my mind, it's like a court of law trying to prove a case and to call in witnesses who are saying essentially what the scriptures say or teach to corroborate. I think that is, to me, more evidence that just keeps piling up. Now, I want to read the title of this book, from which I'm going to give you a small quote, and this was published this year. It is called, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, by Peter Zihan. And he writes, in part, in his book, now listen, the world of the past few decades has been the best it will ever be in our lifetime. I think he's maybe in his 50s. The world of the past few decades has been the best it will ever be in our lifetime. Instead of cheap and better and faster, we're rapidly transitioning into a world that is pricier and worse and slower. Because the world, our world, is breaking apart. The 2020s will see a collapse of consumption and production and investment and trade almost everywhere. The coming global disorder and demographic collapse will do more than condemn a multitude of countries to the past, it will herald the rise of others. Perhaps the oddest thing of our soon to be present is that while the Americans revel in their petty internal squabbles, they will barely notice that elsewhere the world is ending. Lights will flicker and go dark. Famine's leathery claws will dig deep and hold tight. Access to the inputs, financial and material and labor that define the modern world will cease existing in sufficient quantity to make modernity possible. The story will be different everywhere, but the overarching theme will be unmistakable. The last 75 years long will be remembered as a golden age and one that didn't last nearly long enough for that. Title of the book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning by Peter Zehan. Now the interesting thing here is I already gave you a clue. He's not a professing Christian. I don't believe from what I've read up on him that he's even one of these extremists, way to the left, way to the right, conspiracists and all that. He's a geopolitical expert. And this book, from what I've read about it, has been well received in his circles, geopolitical. He studies the politics of other countries. He is an American, not just our country, but around the globe. And he goes through all of these things that are pointing to the fact that countries are going to collapse, whole countries. He has a very optimistic view about America, for which I could not speak one way or the other, that it's correct or not correct. But it's not based on religion. The title of this book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, is something that we would have expected to be written by an eschatologist, a Christian theologian, someone who's an expert in the end times. These are the type of titles we read. 
My uh, very close friend, good friend, Grant Jeffrey, who passed away a few years ago, internationally best-selling author. When I saw this title, I thought of him. And even when I read the way this man writes, it was similar to how Grant used to write very intelligently. What's fascinating is that you can find people outside the church who seem to have a better perspective on things than those inside the church, who are largely, in my opinion, being entertained by someone that we just mentioned. It's a type of coming to church for some excitement. But it's not about excitement, it's about truth. It's not about being stimulated as much as it's about being anchored in the truth and living it out every day of the week. I find it very interesting, and I read up on him a little bit, just searched his accounts and see what he was saying. He does not seem to be someone who's in favor of religion. I don't say that he's against it, but that's not his profession. And so I say to you that it seems in many, many places that there are people outside the walls of some church that have a better view, like this man here, than those inside. Let me go back to my illustration. Now, I'm not asking you yes or no. I'm not asking you to say anything. But I'm going to say that if you absolutely knew you were going to meet God tonight for judgment as to where you're going to spend eternity, in heaven or in the hell that Jesus spoke about and died for, how would you live? But the truth of it is that we don't expect to die today. For many of us, the statistics are in our favor. But if you're in my line of work, you find that from time to time, statistics aren't as accurate. And I'm seeing this, by the way, more and more. Someone who wasn't supposed to die is dead. If you really believed that you were going to meet God tonight, which I know that you don't, because quite frankly, neither do I. That's the truth. I don't believe I'm going to die today. But that doesn't mean I won't. So I must be prepared to meet my God at any moment because I don't know the time of my death. But the point here, the larger point is that people talk about the Lord is coming and all that. But what I'm watching, I say this truly by the Spirit of God, not by just studying. Something that occurred to me to give to you on this subject is when Moses was up at Mount Sinai and he was taking a bit long the people, the children of Israel, who had just been freed from over 400 years of slavery, it says, and they rose up to play. Now that word play doesn't mean just to have fun. They were drunk and having fornication and sexual immorality and all that. But just the phrase, Moses is up and God is giving him the law for which half the planet admires and agrees with. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, and the name of the Lord of A and all these things. Oh, and the Sabbath, I forgot the Sabbath. And God says, do these things and live. While he's up there receiving the commandments from the Lord, they're tired of this way. And they haven't even begun. They're already tired of waiting on Moses. So they convince Aaron to make them a god, small g, that they can worship. Like they had seen in Egypt and like the countries around them did. And then at one point, they wanted to go back to Egypt. Back to their slavery. For those of you who have been delivered from a lifestyle that was pretty bad, it would be astonishing to me if you were to tell me in some conversation, I want to go back to that. The drug addict to go back to his drugs. The alcoholic to go back to his alcohol or the whatever. Some people do. They see the depths of sin. Maybe some of you haven't, but some have here. And if you were to say to me, I just want to go back. For me and my way of viewing things, which I believe is biblical, I would be astonished. Go back to what? Vomiting in the toilet or being broke or whatever people do. I mean, you take it from there and you go on and on. Because why? Let me use this word. Because this lifestyle of following Christ is a bit boring. Now you say, what do you mean by that? Well, I understand. Look, I've been around a long time. I've been in a lot of different churches in the past. I've been where I'm preaching and someone's playing an organ while I'm preaching. And people are jumping and they're shouting. And that's all good. And when I was younger, I had more of an affinity toward that than I do now. Because the truth of it is, we're over-entertained. You can look at a family eating dinner and everybody's staring at a phone. Communication is almost nil. And this is called progress. Well, let me just make the point. You really believe these are the last? You really believe you're going to see your Christ? Do you really believe that you're going to give an account for your life? Well, I'll tell you, this is the thing you look for. It's your behavior. Your behavior will dictate what you actually believe. I heard a phrase a long time ago. A man's morality will dictate his theology. If I believed in some things that certain people promote, 
I wouldn't speak the way I do, but I don't. And I, I sincerely believe it won't be long before I'm going to meet my God and I'm going to have to give an account. He's not going to ask me, how many people did you have? How many were you running? Because Noah's church was not all that great. I mean, not by the numbers. He could barely save his own family, same with Lot. And then Lot wasn't too successful in that at all. His wife died, then his daughters caused him to commit incest. And we have a picture of the Bible in these uh, rose-colored glasses. And this is why the critics are somewhat successful at arguing against the Bible, because they're reading what the text says, and the professing Christian is not. They're reading what they wanted to say, and not what it actually says. Anyway, Peter Zehan, he's making a case that soon, that means like in the next year or two, we're going to see the collapse of countries economically, yeah, in fact, I read right after I was reading this, I was reading an article about Russia and how they're really doing very poorly for food, and the same for China, economically and otherwise. In any case, we could take comfort in the fact that God has a plan, and he's working his plan, and he did save Noah. We'll talk about him in just a moment. He did save Noah from destruction. But we cannot live in such a way that while all the wood nails, so to speak, are hanging over there, and God said, build an ark, we're not building it. And then expect when it rains, just walk in it and it just kind of pops together. If you love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments. Do what I say. He that has my commandments and does them, this is the one that loves me. And he who has my commandments but does not do them, that one does not love me. So away with the argument, away with this superficial, you don't know my heart. I know my own to an extent, and I can't trust it. I have to trust the scriptures. I have to apply my will to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Now, some of you are familiar with this young man, and he is young. Young compared to me. Conservative podcast and conservative author. Fairly popular. His name is Matt Walsh, a Christian. Or what he is described as a practicing Catholic. He has some good things to say, and he wrote a book just two years ago, and it's called Church of Cowards. I want to read just an excerpt from his book. Matt Walsh said, I do not believe that I exaggerate when I say that the average American Christian has never given up one single thing for Christ. Now, I'm not certain that I totally agree with that, but I think the operative word would be average Christian, the average professing Christian. Now, I just want to say one thing to you, and think about it later. What have you actually given up so that you can actually be a professing Christian? What does it cost you? See, this is why this free, this and free grace, grace is free. But grace changes you. Grace gives you the power to make changes and to let go of things and, and so on. I know that for me, I have not paid the price that some have paid, that's for sure. But it's been a heavy price. I do not believe that I exaggerate when I say that the average American Christian has never given up one single thing for Christ. He goes on to say, this is the great problem with American society. It is the widest gate the world has ever known. Gate being, Jesus said, it's a narrow gate that leads to heaven. It's a wide gate that leads to destruction. And America, he says, is the widest gate we've ever had, relative to Jesus' words. We are free to spread our arms and live exactly as we wish. But true freedom is not found in living exactly as we wish, but in living as God wishes. He writes, we celebrate our, quote, freedom, which has become nothing more than the freedom to destroy ourselves. Our founders envisioned a people free to be moral and religious, enabled to achieve their full spiritual potential, liberated from the oppression of a tyrannous government. We have taken this spiritual freedom and turned it into spiritual slavery. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus warns, he writes, that means not just that we cannot serve two, but that we will serve one. No man is truly free to serve himself. He will either serve the God of heaven or the devil of hell. Interestingly, that Bob Dylan in 1979 wrote a song that's identical to that. You've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. The words of Bob Dylan. Walsh goes on to write, only the slave to Christ is free. The slave to Satan is wrung out like a sponge until he is nothing but a husk, and then the husk is incinerated. The true danger we face, listen, is not cataclysmic and violent persecution, but the slow drifting from the truth. 
This is what has become of Christendom in the West. It caught a nice warm wave and rode it into darkness. Christians here are not falling away dramatically or suddenly, and that's the truth. I've watched people I've known for 30, 40 years and watched them just step by step, just like the second hand on the clock, just like this. Barely noticeable at first until the large hands and then the small hand moves with it and then, you know, they're hours away from where they used to be. And that's been my experience as well as what he wrote. Not drifting, I'm walking out the door after one message. Might be after a dozen, then a temptation. And then Satan hangs out and he says, you know, you can go over here and you'll have it a whole lot easier. And your whole family will come too. There's a lot of deception Satan offers. But I will say this to you, there's only one truth. And that's Jesus. And that's what Jesus says to us and taught us and what the apostles wrote and the prophets. Let me read this again. The true danger we face is not cataclysmic and violent persecution, but the slow drifting from the truth. This is what has become of Christendom in the West. It caught a nice warm wave and rode it into the darkness. Christians here are not falling away dramatically or suddenly. We are not disavowing God with hatred in our hearts. We're not even diving all the way into the depths of our sin, like the prodigal son, where we might hit the bottom and find ourselves sleeping in the mud with the pigs. We are not doing anything so decisive. We lack the conviction to even sin enthusiastically. On that note there, I wanted to say something I heard years ago from a college professor. His belief, and I kind of agree, he told his class, he says, look, if you're going to sin, do it with all your heart. If you're going to go out and sin, just really sin. Matt Walsh brings up a point. I mean, the idea of the professor was that hopefully you understand that this isn't the way to go. But Matt Walsh brings up a very good point. We're talking about professing Christians. The title of the book is Cowards in the Church. The idea is that we don't do anything decisively. Even when we sin, it's just a little bit of sin and a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of church and a little bit of prayer. And I'm not advising you to sin enthusiastically, but I think that would be preferable to lukewarmness with Christ. Because it may be that you'll see exactly what sin does. Because I've seen it in almost a half a century. And you see what happens to people when they continually do not obey the way of God, the laws of God, the commands of Christ. You see it. You can watch it. It's like a cancer growing. You see it. He goes on to say this. We are not running away from God with determination. We are not running at all. Instead, we have built a nice, comfortable raft of self-deception. And upon it, we are floating gently, gently, gently into hell. It's quite, quite a read. I haven't read it all the way through yet, but it's quite a read. But this is where we're at. We have secular sources that sound more like preachers than preachers. We have professors of followers of Christ who refuse to change their behavior, to line it up with the word of God and the words of God, and gently, gently, gently. I won't go as far as Walsh did. Just drift from Christ. And I tell you this as an experienced pastor. So what they do is they find themselves in another place, another church building or a church, where the preacher will allow them to go along and do whatever they want. Which means one of two things. The preacher doesn't have a good understanding of what the Bible means by sin and its consequences. Or if he does, he doesn't really care what you do. My burden for most of all my life is that I actually care what people do. And I will share with you that I will say to you that it would be a whole lot easier just to live for myself. So let me go over with you. And the title of the message is The Rapture and the Revelation basic outline of how the Bible presents and how we understand the Bible presents what will occur next. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, 16, 17 that the Lord will descend with a shout, trump of God, voice of the archangel, and take away the church before the great tribulation. That's what and how we understand it which will allow the rule of this one world leader known biblically as the Antichrist. And so if we go back to Peter Zihan, and if he's correct in his calculations and what he does for a living, not professing Christ or preaching from a pulpit like I do, that would be the perfect opportunity. There's no food, no jobs, 
Oh, and by the way, while I'm on that subject as a parenthetical statement, how is it that you can go to so many places from your mechanic to the lab to get blood work, whatever, and you can't find workers? And then we read on the news that unemployment is the lowest it's been in so many years. And I'm saying, at very minimal, this is cognitive dissonance. Because my experience is every single place I go, including to get blood work, including to get something fixed on my car, they're telling me, and there's two places that they've actually told me, because I've asked them, we're so backed up, we can't get workers. Yet the White House and others are telling us, hey, everybody's working except maybe 5% of the people. Well, they're not working around here. Where are they? When things get to the place, which they haven't just yet, when they get to the place where there's no food and the economy is more than a disaster, they can't trade and there's nothing to offer, then when someone says, I will lead you, I will pull all this together, I will bring a peace to the world, I will bring a peace to the religions, and so on and so forth, the stage is being primed now for that leader, the Antichrist. That's why I often say I sure hope we're right in our theology. Amen. That the rapture will happen first. But I, for one, will not become excessively dogmatic about it. I just offer the evidence I'm about to give you in just a moment. The Bible outlines seven years of a tribulation period that Jesus said the world has never seen. If you're at all acquainted with history, you know there's been some pretty bad periods of history. Jesus said this will outdo them all. So once again, I hope that we're not here. But even if we are... God has always made a way for his people. But you make sure you actually belong to him. I could say I'm anything. I wear t-shirts that have logos. One is for a friend of mine that owns a dojo, and another one for another friend of mine that owns a dojo. I'll wear anything I've actually told people. If you want me to advertise your business, give me a t-shirt. So I'm not going to pay to advertise their business, but so people see sometimes, and they just assume that I'm an expert in martial arts, and I'm not, or <laughs> whatever. And so if we made Christianity to be a t-shirt, it doesn't mean that everyone that wears a t-shirt says, I'm a follower of Christ, actually is. Seven years of tribulation that Jesus said that it would be so bad that if it weren't for God's intervention and in his plan, that there would be no flesh left on the earth. And we believe that the rapture precedes, A, the rule of an antichrist, and B, the seven years of great tribulation. After the tribulation, the seven-year period, is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the return of Christ to the earth where we read not too long ago in the Apostles' Creed, and we've got to keep this in mind. Remember, this is not vogue in this age in which we live here in America, and this is not popular to say when he comes, he's coming to judge. And that's part of the church. I don't care if it's Roman Catholic or the Anglican Church or whatever. The Apostles' Creed has been accepted by just about every denomination, Christian denomination. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. And you have to understand intellectually, if not morally, that not all of that judgment is going to be good. Read the 25th chapter of Matthew about the use of gifts and talents. Why do I accent that so much? Because from the beginning, the harvest has been plentiful and the labors have been few. Let me be truthful with you this morning, okay? My concern for you is that your heart doesn't get so hardened by whatever it is, sin, trials, bad life, that you're not hearing the words of the Bible, that you're not hearing the words of Christ. I, for one, have already made a decision that whatever it takes, I'm not going to have people pull me away from my Christ. I don't care what the cost is. And why? What's called the fear of the Lord. Because I know what God can do for good, and I know what he can do for evil. And I just read this morning in my devotions in Isaiah, where God says, I create good and I create evil. Well, that's a theological conundrum for a lot of people, because they say, well, the devil creates evil and God creates good, and God said in his word, I do both. Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, the blessing, the curse, and God says, I do that. So the fear of the Lord keeps you in the knowledge of what God can do, good or bad, blessing or curse, when he decides. Oh, let me just, let me go a little further, can I? You know, all these years that God has supplied for you, well, I gave it away. All these years that you've had this and that and the other thing, who gave it to you? Oh, well, I worked hard. Well, I've worked hard too, and I do, you know, obviously believe in that. But who gave me the health? Who gave me opportunities? And on and on and on. It's God. If God pulls everything out, there's nothing. And the verse says, if God be for us, who could be against us? And we cheer, yay! But let's reverse it for a moment. If God be against you, who could be for you? Yeah. Well, I have a friend in congressman, whatever, really? Yeah. But let's say they really are your friend. You're going to find things go mysteriously wrong. People can't figure out why. It's because God controls the curse or God controls the blessing. 
God sets up one over a government and they cast another down. It's the sovereignty of God. In any case, at the return of Christ, Revelation chapter 19, we see that Christ comes as the judge. We read about him in Isaiah 61, other places. We read about him coming as the Lamb of God. And that's our sacrifice. That's our mercy seat. That's where we go. That's where we run to. That's where we confess our sins. We do it here in this church every week. This is where we come to and say, God, I'm so wrong, and on and on. But you can't bypass that and just say, hey, God, thanks, I'm here. When Jesus returns, he returns to judge the living and the dead. And we're judged, as the Bible says, as I didn't say this, by what's written in another book, your personal biography, where the pages are lifted one by one, one by one, and everything said and done is judged. Then there'll be a millennial rule, a thousand years of the golden utopia man has been looking for. At the end of that comes that judgment I just spoke about, judgment of the living and the dead. Then the lake of fire, which the Bible talks about. And then there is eternity, a new heavens and a new earth. Keep this in mind, though the earth is going to suffer some great disasters, it will never be destroyed, just renovated, so to speak. So let me talk to you just a little bit about the rapture and what evidence I would use to support. God is going to save his people from the great tribulation and the awful things that secular people are writing about. While Christians write about how to lose weight on a keto diet. That has irked me so much I can't tell you. Because that's not what this pulpit is made for. This pulpit is made to preach the gospel. When we look at Noah, it says he found grace in the eyes of God. And it wasn't because his prayer life was so eloquent. He really, really charmed God. Though his lifestyle was just like everybody else in the world. No, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord because he followed the ways of the Lord while the rest of the world did not. And I have, as many people do, the conviction that he had to be the whipping post of so much mockery, building this huge ship. For what? Up to that point, it had never rained, never had anything overflow. And everybody laughed at him until the day he went in. My point, though, here is that God saved Noah from his judgment. He saved him from it. Eight people. Which should give us pause to think that if we just all congregate and form a certain number, God's going to listen to us. This is not like lobbying Washington, where some people who act like prostitutes will do what the people say because they're afraid they won't get votes or they can't keep the money coming into their pockets and funneling it out wherever they do. Go before God. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. This is God we're talking about. Eight people. And then there was Lot during the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says Lot was a righteous man and that living there vexed his soul. He chose it, but it vexed his soul. And so God has the angels appear. First he talks to Abraham. This is important too. God appears to Abraham and he tells Abraham what he's about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham remembers Lot, his nephew, is there. And Abraham says, well, what if there's 50 righteous people? Then God says, I won't destroy it. What about 45? I won't destroy it. 40, 30, 20, 10 people righteous. I won't destroy it. But there wasn't even 10. Now, as thinking people, is it possible that here in the United States or Europe, around the world, wherever, whatever country you're listening from and watching, is it possible that a whole nation could get to the point, or a whole city could get to the point where there's not even 10 righteous people? What has happened in history past. And so Lot escapes, and his wife... His sons-in-law thought he was joking. This is thought he was joking. This is Sodom. Sodom is well-watered. It's hot economically and just a great place to live, according to them. And they never got out. The daughters got out, and so, just to say it, Lot and his two daughters were the only ones that survived it because they believed the word of the Lord. But even then, if you look at the story, Lot was reluctant. He was dragging his feet. Are you dragging your feet today with God? I'm going to just give you something here, something I did recently, and I think I mentioned it to you, but I have completely not watched any television at all for about a month and a half now. Nothing. Nothing. I'm not saying I will never watch it. I'm not saying that. I just wanted to do an experiment. And I'm finding that my mind is clearer. I'm doing some other things at night rather than watching. I don't watch stuff that's on television. I record things that I know I can watch without violating my conscience and so on. I used to do it just to relax my mind, but then I said to myself, well, maybe there's a better way to relax my mind before I go to sleep. 
and make it productive. And so far, I'm finding that my mind is getting sharper. Because sometimes, you know, if you think of it as noise, there's just so much noise, social media. Now, for those of you who are friends with me on Facebook or Instagram or even Twitter, and you say, I don't know why he don't answer me. I don't scroll. What I do is I see my news feed is one, two, three, that's it, I'm done, I'm out. I'm like Groucho Marx. When television first came out, he found television to be very, very educational. He said, every time it's on, I go into another room and read a book. <laughs> and I thought of that often, of his statement, and I'm not saying that social media doesn't have value. It does have value to me. I'm just simply saying that I'm not on it like this. I like to wish happy birthday to people and so on. But I'm finding that my mind is getting sharper and clearer because there's not as much distraction and noise. Anyway, Noah was saved from the flood and Lot was saved from destruction. And this we look at as evidence that God will save his church from the great tribulation, from the time of persecution, from the time of the rule of an antichrist. But through the years, I've given to you more evidence that there's biblical precedent for raptures in the Bible. So I'll briefly mention those. We read in Genesis that Enoch walked with God and he was not. This we look at and say this is a rapture. The Bible doesn't specifically say how or what, just that he walked with God and then he was gone. He was gone. When we go a little further into the prophets, we see Elijah. And it was told to him that God is going to take you up alive. And that's exactly what the Bible records and testifies to. God took him up in a chariot of fire. Enoch, Elijah, of course, Jesus. A bit different, of course, in Jesus' case. In the book of Acts, there's Philip, who is transferred from the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch, where he explains the 53rd chapter of Isaiah to him and then baptizes him in the river. And he's immediately translated over to Azotus, another city. He just appears there. And that's a rapture. Two, uh, I mentioned Enoch and Elijah is from the earth to heaven, from the earth to heaven. And Philip is from the earth to the earth. And then we have the Apostle Paul, who will go on to say, I knew a man above so many years ago. And whether he was in his body or out of his body, he says, I don't know. He's speaking of himself in the third person. He mentions it again. He says, whether in the body or out of the body, I truly don't know. But I was taken up to the third heaven. And I saw things that it's not lawful for a man to speak about. Either meaning God would not permit him to put down what he saw into the book for the furtherance of our having faith in God. Or whatever it means. And then he's brought back down to the earth. And my point here is for those brethren who argue against the rapture and all of that. There is precedent of raptures in the Bible. And there is also certainly precedent of God saving his people out of their troubles. And from trouble. Or in our case here, from tribulation. Now... You are all informed people. You watch the news. I don't know how much reading that you do. I truly don't know. But I'm reading the news all day long via internet. I don't watch the television. I don't watch any of them. The right, the left, none of them. I don't watch any of them. I read it. And as I read and then, you know, come across little clips and so forth, I once again am convinced these are the days that were spoken of by the prophets, by the apostles, and by Christ, our Savior. Just a few months ago, a school, Manhattan Grace Church High School, who has a mandatory chapel, it's a private school, mandatory chapel service every other week. Some of the students were absolutely surprised to find that in this chapel service was a drag queen who was teaching them about what it's like to be a drag queen and so on. Now, some, or at least many, or perhaps many, of the students just went along with it, just had a great old time, dancing and shaking and moving and whatever they did. But some students were absolutely appalled. Young people, right? High school level. A chapel service. I saw a video of a church. I don't know what church it was, but it was packed. The church was packed with people. with big, huge stained glass and all of the accoutrements of what we used to look at as a typical church. And it was the same thing. It was some kind of pride event. And the people were, you know, they're not just dressed up, I mean, like, dressed up and saying, talking about their sexuality. They're dressed up in weird, demonic-looking costumes inside this church building. I don't know who, what church it was. But this here, I just want to just give you a glimpse as more evidence of what we're heading into that, again, are being written about more by secular authors than they are by Christians. 
And so the event, it says here, was sponsored by Spectrum, the school's LGBT support club. Now, this is an Episcopal church, church school, and they have a little support club for lesbians, gays, bisexuals, transgender. And it was the sixth annual Pride Chapel, and the students alleged they were forced to have a good time. Who forces anybody to have a good time? Whether they wanted to or not, quote, there was tons of social pressure to dance along and pretend like it was normal for sure, said a student who wished to remain anonymous. Whether it be people tapping on shoulders and telling them to stand up, or just a collective staring contest at whoever wasn't totally participating. According to the Post, New York Post, pride stickers were handed to the students along with a piece of advice, take one or you're homophobic. Now, let me just say something about Hamas, not Hamas the group, Hamas from Greek, man. Homo sapien, and phobos, which is a Greek word for where we get phobia. Phobos means a fear. So if you're homophobic, which the way it's applied means you're afraid of homosexuals. And I want to speak for myself. I'm not afraid. Further, I would say that what people do behind closed doors, I'd never know if they didn't tell me. Thirdly, how in the world? I mean, people have the right. You're watching this live stream, you turn it off. Some people come and then they leave. They have that right. God has given us the privileges in this country to preach from pulpits like this. But I can't go out in the street and go to an event like the St. Patrick's Day Parade, for instance, and say, you know, you're going to accept my Christian flag and our beliefs and so on. They don't put up with that. But this group here is pushed and pushed and pushed. A lot of people are doing that. I want to say about Jesus, he gives you opportunity. He invites. The choice is then with the person. Yes or no. Anyway, the students went on to wonder. One student was saying, is this really happening in the chapel? And if you look and do your homework, if you care to do that, it's happening a lot. It's happening in grade schools. It's happening in kindergartens. Instead of saying, hey, Pastor Rick, can you come and read a book to the children in kindergarten? Saying, sure. They're asking drag queens. And then one, and in one case I read where the drag queen was saying, now, remember, we keep secrets from our parents. Did I tell you that in the state of Washington, they can administer antidepressants to their children and not even tell the parent? Wonder why your kid is sluggish or slow or something that's going on. And it's been for quite a while in many states where your daughter could have an abortion and you never know about it. What I'm trying to say is, wake up. Now, here's the odd thing. You say, Pastor, are you like a depressed person? And I'm not. Not at all. If you've watched my Oasis show, you would know. I appreciate the nature of God and I feel a peace inside. Why? Because it's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. Still have a sense of humor. Because I know my God. And I know what He can do. And I trust Him. And I feel safe. Not emotionally as much as intellectually. I'm safe. Because that's what the word saved means. And I just don't hope that I'm saved. I know I'm saved. But I keep wanting to walk that straight line because I know that to depart from it won't be good for me. You see, we live in a world, once again, I say for the third or fourth time today, we live in a world where people who are studying geopolitical trends and economic trends and moral trends that are outside the church are sounding more like prophets than people with Bibles in their hands. And it should be the other way around. But God has said, I will always have a witness. I will always raise up a testimony because he's God. Just a final word about this here on the application TikTok. The woman who was the drag queen went on to write. He said, I literally went to a church to teach the children today. The performer posted along with the sample of the show. Now it says here a Catholic high school. The one I mentioned was Episcopal. Maybe this is another school. I don't know. A Catholic high school here in New York City invited me to their pride chapel. Visibility matters and I'm so honored to have the chance to talk to you about my work as an LGBTQ drag queen activist. So, we could talk about wars and rumors of wars and you know what's going on in the Ukraine with Russia and missiles yesterday were fired in the Gaza Strip by Israel, return fire by the Palestinians. North Korea is offering soldiers to Russia to keep going forward with the Ukraine and it goes on and on and on. And the word woke is a joke, woke joke, it's a joke. But to be awakened to righteousness, which the scripture says, that's not a joke. We have to be alert. We have to understand the times we live in. I preached this a week or so back and know what to do. If there was ever a time to pray, this is that time. If there was ever a time to make the Bible the primary book of your life, 
This is that time. If there was ever a time to say, I'm going forward with Jesus regardless of the results, this is that time. Lastly, and I just spoke about the Great Tribulation. I'm just giving you an overview of these things and some reasons to believe in why the rapture would occur first. But again, I say this for those who have their own reason to say, no, the rapture is going to happen in the middle of the tribulation or the end, whatever it is, to me is not as much the point as it is to be ready to meet your God. Be ready to meet your God. Oh, by the way, here's the paradox of the life that we live. These people here, whether they're drag queens or whatever they do, we're not to hate them. We're not to hate them. God had mercy on us. But I'm using this as examples of the times in which we live, because I've had this done to me. You would think that everywhere I go, I just announce, so before we get started here today, I'm a preacher, and you're going to hear me talk about Jesus. I don't. But I have had that thrust on me in other organizations that I, well, I'm not in any longer. And said, so I won't have that thrust on me. I will not take part in that and how to leave. The revelation of Jesus Christ, it's coming. And the thing that I want to leave you with is the aspect of Christ's judgment. You know, we were judged. Every quarter, was it, in school? We were judged. You got a 50 in biology. Well, you didn't. I did. And a 75 in algebra and a 90. That was a judgment. Maybe the time will be coming when the schools will be called on the carpet and sued for judging my little Johnny. He was very upset about you saying he only had a 60. Well, then we went through the whole participation trophy thing. Now, as these kids get older, they're expecting life to always hand them something. Nobody can be stronger. Nobody can be faster. Might I mention, which is, as an aside again, as men become women and they enter the world of sports, they're blowing the women away in everything. Oh, what a surprise. What testosterone can do. You know, it's becoming absurd. And if we didn't have the Bible, what would we do? How would we hold on to our sanity? How would we have any hope? The rapture of the church, revelation of Christ comes after, as I explained. The rapture of the church is called the blessed hope. I mean, if you believe the Bible, God is saying, I'm your hope. I'm your hope. I read again this morning in Isaiah. He says, I am, I'm going to paraphrase it. I am your savior. There is no other. And whenever Israel leaned on the flesh and went to other countries and made alliances, it turned out disastrous. Whenever they relied on the Lord, which is a difficult thing to do because we can't see them, it turned out well. And so the rapture and the revelation and whatever else is in between has got to become our consideration. I do believe, as I spoke to you last week about the keeping of the Lord's day, making it holy, is the thing that holds all other doctrines together because without that, people forget. And like Matt Walsh remarked, and slowly they drip from the truth. Your mind has the ability to rationalize anything. You can rationalize, in other words, you can rationalize sin and say, well, you know, no, it's okay. When God says it's not okay. So what I propose is that we continue to re-sign ourselves to the Lord and to examine ourselves, which the scriptures tell us to do, read 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians as well. It tells us to examine ourselves Paul was so bold as to tell the Corinthian church to examine themselves to see if they were even in the faith. You see, when you read the Bible from a purist point of view, it's shocking. What? If I came to you this morning, I said, listen, you need to go home and examine this to find out if you're actually even a Christian. Well, I know you wouldn't be happy with me, but that's what the apostle Paul did. The church that he started, he says, you know, examine yourself to see if you're even in the faith. I'm not going that far with you. I'm just simply saying, let's have a good dose of humility in our lives to entertain the thought that we may not be what we should be. A good drink from the glass of humility to say, I've got to go before God, and I have to ask with the thought in mind that I may not be all that he wants me to be. Now, maybe you'll be surprised and say, no, you're doing just fine. But we have to be honest with God and go before him and say to him, God, am I all that I should be? I know in my own life, and it's been a long time walking with the Lord, God keeps seeming to find something else that needs to change. It's amazing to me, but it's okay as well. It's okay as well. The scriptures say the joy of the Lord is our strength. So here is, and I didn't accent this at all in this message, but here again is that paradox. 
we can have joy and we can have peace, and this is the fruit of the Spirit anyway, and faith and all these things, in the hour in which we live, and more so if we actually just take God at his word. This is becoming more and more of my experience that I'm seeing God do these things, even in the midst of adversity, grief, disappointment, and many other things. I'm seeing God's word come to pass in my own life. Is everything going great in your life? Well, quite frankly, no, it's not. That's to be honest. Do you have peace, Pastor Ray? Yes, I do. And I have strength and confidence and so forth. What am I saying? God is able. God is able. Father, we bow our hearts before you this morning. We bow our heads. We come before you and we just take a look into your word and then we compare it to the world and what's going on around us, even in our own personal lives. We just ask you today, God, to help us to continue to pursue you. The song we sing as the deer pants for water. God, help our hearts to have that type of desire, a non-negotiable appetite for you, hungry for you. Help us, God. Pour out your spirit, God, on us, and let us bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, faith, meekness, and self-control. Help us today, God. Because we're coming to you today, God, and asking you with a whole full glass of humility in our hearts and saying to you, God, are we what we ought to be? Are we what you expected us to be or expect us to be? Help us, God. Let us know. Give us the grace to change. Give us the grace to look at the scriptures and see what it actually says, which is right there in either black and white or red and white. God, help us. Strengthen your people. Strengthen the church because you promised to build it. And the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Yes, God. Give us faith. Increase, as the apostles said, our faith. Increase our faith. Help us, God, to do what we ought to do in this generation. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. Give you all the honor today. The scriptures say, from the rising of the sun to the going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. That's what the scriptures say. My feet hit the floor. I remind myself, no matter what I face, this is the day the Lord has made. So I embrace it pain, disappointment, whatever comes my way, and whatever it is, embrace it, because this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice, be glad in it. And so God, as we end another service, help us to be grateful that no matter what is going on in our lives, we are still able to say to you, thank you, Lord. You will fulfill your promises. And then, Lord, always remind us during this week to love you with not some of the heart and the mind, all of the heart all of the mind, all of the strength. Help us to love you with everything that we have and then to love one another. And this will have streams in the desert, an oasis of refreshment until we see you. And there's no more need for deserts, no more need for discipline and so on. And sin will come to an end. This morning, God, we give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor in Jesus' mighty name. Can everybody say amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.